0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. God, rescue me from my enemies, for they are in hot pursuit. I did nothing to deserve this, God. They're constantly watching, hoping to take my life. You've kept track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I'm thanking you, God, out loud in the streets. You've been a safe place for me, a good place to hide. I can always count on you. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 26. Uh, For the past several weeks, we have been running in the wilderness uh, with David like a fugitive, we've been learning many lessons uh, about faith along the way. And the Lord wants to teach us, I believe, more lessons uh, about faith today through this particular part of David's life story. And so let's read it together as we begin. 1 Samuel 26. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. Uh, And today, just in honor of the reading of God's Word, if you would stand with me as we read this together. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, the words will be on the screens behind me. 1 Samuel 26, verse 1, it says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakela opposite Jeshimon?' Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakilah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Abishai, son of Zariah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Verse 13, now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your Lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your Lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was by his head. Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now, do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray, Father, that as we study it, as we think about it, that, Lord, you would take your word, you would drive it deep into our hearts. Father, we each come into this room from different backgrounds, from different places, different questions, different troubles, different sorrows. But, Father, may your spirit speak to each one of our hearts as only you can. And may we look to you and may we trust in you and in your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I know that uh, today is the last day of summer break. And there is, I am sure, a lot of different emotions that go along with that. The kids are weeping. Uh, The parents are rejoicing. Uh, But, uh, you know, honestly, when I think about when I was back uh, in school and I would come to the end of the summer, uh, I was usually getting pretty bored uh, by that time, uh, because in those summer days, there wasn't a lot of structure to those days, and so uh, usually I would wake up in the morning and just kind of veg out and watch uh, all of these uh, reruns, these shows that were like 30 years old when I was a kid, shows like Andy Griffith and Gomer Pyle and Beverly Hillbillies and uh, all of that. And uh, But you know, how many episodes of Beverly Hillbillies can you really watch, right? You know, a a bubbling crude, black gold, Texas tea. I mean, how much of it can you take? And so by the end of the summer, I I was just done with with all of those reruns. And and, you know, today, a a lot of people are still watching reruns. They're just watching reruns of different shows, right? Shows that are 10 or 20 or 30 years old now. In fact, uh, one of the most watched shows on Netflix is not a new show, uh, it is a, an old show that's been off the air for many years, a show called The Office, and people are just watching reruns of it over and over again. You know, in many ways, if you've been with us for the last few weeks of this study, the story that we just read in chapter 26 feels like a rerun. You hear this story and you think, it seems to me like I've read something just like this, or at least something very much like this, just a little bit ago. And if you feel that way, that's because you're right. That's because there is a story that is a whole lot like this, just two chapters before this in 1 Samuel 24. Because in both chapter 24 and chapter 26, there is someone who gives away David's location to King Saul In both chapters, Saul comes after David, but David is given an opportunity in both of these stories to end Saul's life. In one story, in chapter 24, it's when Saul is in a cave and doesn't realize that David is there in the back of that cave. In this story, in chapter 26, it's because Saul is fast asleep and David is standing over his head. And in both stories, David does not kill him, but he takes something with him to prove that he had the opportunity to kill him. In chapter 24, it was a corner of Saul's robe that he cut off. And in this story, it's his water jug and his spear that he takes with him as evidence that he could have killed Saul if he had chosen. And also in both stories, Saul at the end of the story is remorseful. He urges David to come back with him. But both times, David knows that Saul cannot be trusted and he refuses to go with him. And so there are a lot of similarities between these two stories. But as we know, history does have a way of repeating itself. But one difference that we will see between these two stories is that David is not the same person that he was in the first story, that he has grown since then. God has been teaching David, and some of the things that David has learned, he puts into practice in this situation. Hopefully the same will be true of us, right? As we grow in Christ, as we walk with him year after year. Hopefully there are things that we are learning along the way so that when we face similar situations in the future to situations that we've faced in the past, that we will handle them differently, that we'll apply the lessons that we have learned. Very quickly, let's make sure that we hear this Story first, and we understand what has happened in this part of David's life, and then we'll walk back through the story a second time and look at some of the lessons that we can learn from it. So, the story starts out in verse one, where we find out that for the second time, this group of people called the Ziphites sold David out. A lot of people like David, the Ziphites were not among that group, and uh, they continually tell Saul where he is hiding. And so, in verse two, Saul hops up and he runs after David again. In spite of what he said in chapter 24 when he promised David that he would never uh, hurt him again or come after him again, clearly that was just a bunch of hot air. And David was wise not to trust Saul, not to go back with Saul, like he asked him to. And so Saul comes into this region where David is, and he camps there. And David is at a vantage point where he's able to see down into the camp, and he sees where Saul is lying down for the night. He sees that Abner, his commander, is lying right beside him. He sees that Saul is right in the middle of his army and that his troops, 3,000 troops, are surrounding him all around. Uh, You know, by the way, I'm sure that Saul thought that he was pretty safe that night when he lay down right in the middle of that camp. But as it turns out, he wasn't safe at all. You know, the same principle applies to us today if we are living the way that Saul was living, if we are running from the Lord, if we are not living in accordance with the word of God, if we're living contrary to the way that God has called us to live, we may think that we're in a safe place, but we're in a very, very unsafe place and we're not in the center of God's will for our life. David decides that he's going to sneak into Saul's camp that night. And so in verse 6, he asks some of his best warriors if one of them would go with him. And Abishai, who is actually David's nephew, the son of his sister, is up for the challenge. He probably thought that they were going in on a little two-man secret assassination hit job, but as it turns out, that was not the case, but he agrees to go. And so you can just picture them in your mind as they sneak down into this camp, as they stealthily walk past a couple thousand soldiers and make their way to the very middle of the camp, and there they are standing over the sleeping body of King Saul. And King Saul's spear, which throughout Saul's story is always very close at hand, is stuck there in the ground right by his head, presumably for his protection should he need to use it at some point in the night. But Abishai has a different purpose in mind for Saul's spear, and he asked David if he could borrow it real quick. And again, there's echoes of chapter 4 in this part of the story because Abishai says to David something very, very similar to what the men said to David in the cave. In chapter 24, Abishai says to him, David, don't you see what is happening here? God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Here he is, the man who has been hunting you down, the man who has been trying to kill you. Here he is. He's fast asleep. His spear is right there. Let's finish this. He says, David, just let me do it. Just let me take the spear and thrust it through him. And I love what Abishai says there. He says, I'm only going to have to do it one time, David. I won't have to hit him twice. It will be over so quickly, you will see, and then all your problems will be gone. But David responds to that, and we need to picture in our minds again that they're standing over the sleeping body of the king with soldiers sleeping all around them. And so really this whole conversation is a whisper. And so David responds to uh, abishai to his suggestion that he kill king saul and david whispers to him basically we're not going to do that and then he gives them a reason why they're not going to do it he says we're not going to do it because you cannot stretch out your hand against the lord's anointed one and not be guilty And we'll come back to some of the reasoning that David gives to Abishai in a few minutes. But basically, he says to Abishai, the Lord can take care of this matter on his own, but we are not the ones to determine when and how King Saul will die. And so he tells him to just take the water jug and the spear, and they begin to sneak back out of the camp as quietly as they could. You know, It reminds me of something I have to do every night when I go into my boy's bedroom and I check on them to make sure they're asleep and then I try to get out of the bedroom as quietly as I can to not wake them up. And normally, I botch the whole thing. I kick a toy or something against the wall or I step on a Lego and scream or something happens. But, but they, they were a lot more successful than I, I was. They, they're able to get out undetected. But we also find out that it wasn't all because they were super stealth ninjas. It's because, as verse 12 says that these men were in a deep sleep from the Lord. And actually the word there for deep sleep is the same word that is used in Genesis 2 when God says that he put Adam into a deep sleep when he formed Eve from his side. God was helping David. God was helping Abishai as they escaped with that water jug and with that spear without anyone waking up and then being caught. Verse 13 says that David went and stood on a hill on the opposite side. He was at a far enough distance to be at a safe distance, but still close enough that his voice could be heard as he calls out to Saul's camp in the middle of the night and rouses them from their sleep. And he calls out to Abner, and Abner, the commander of Saul's army, says, who is that calling out? And then David essentially pulls Abner's man card, right? In verse 15, he says, are you not a man. Are you not the commander? You're you're supposed to be the man in Israel, right? You're the one who is supposed to be protecting the king. And then he proceeds to tell him what a horrendous job he had done that very night of protecting the king. He basically says to Abner, if I looked up terrible bodyguard in the dictionary, I would see your face right beside it. And he says, not only do you deserve to die, but all of the soldiers deserve to die. Because throughout history in most armies, it has been a capital offense when you fall asleep when it's your turn to keep watch. And notice that Abner never replies to anything that David says because he has nothing to say. And then David draws their attention to the proof that he was right by Saul's head, the water jug and the spear that are missing. And about this time, Saul begins to wake up, and he recognizes David's voice, and he says, is that you, David, my son? And in verse 18, David says back to him, Why does my Lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? And then he goes on to lay out two options for the possibilities of why Saul has been hunting him down. He says, Saul, if you're hunting me down because I've done something, because I've sinned against the Lord, and the Lord is inspiring you to do this, then let me offer a sacrifice to the Lord that I might be forgiven. But Saul, if you're hunting me down because other people have put you up to this, then let them be a curse. Now, what David doesn't bring up out of respect is the third option, which he almost certainly knows is the case. And that is that Saul wasn't hunting him down because God put him up to it. He wasn't hunting him down because anybody else put him up to it. He was hunting him down because he was being eaten alive with jealousy. And he himself wanted to put David to death. In verse 19, you can hear some of the pain of what this season of David's life has been like as he feels that he's being driven clear out of the land of Israel. And in fact, in the next chapter, chapter 27, he leaves the land of Israel and he goes to the land of the Philistines. He says, it's almost as if because of what you are doing, it's almost as if my own people, the people of Israel, are saying, go away, David. Why don't you just leave Israel altogether and go out and worship other gods? And the reason he says that is because as he leaves the land of Israel, he's leaving the place where the sanctuary was. He's leaving the place where he would be able to meet together with the people of God to praise the Lord with them. And you can hear the anguish and the sadness in David as he speaks about this, as he pleads with Saul. And then he says, Saul, I'm just a little flea. It's the second time he's used that metaphor. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm just a little partridge. I'm a calling bird. You know, earlier Abner had said, who is that calling out to my king? David is basically answering that question. He's saying, I am the calling bird. I'm the one that was calling out. But that's all I am. I'm just a little bird. And his point is, Saul, this is beneath your dignity, your going all over the desert, chasing one man who's just a little flea, just a little bird, and you're trying to kill me for no reason at all. And then in verse 21, Saul replies to David. He admits that he had sinned, and he had done that before, but he had never gone as far as he goes here. Because here in verse 21, he says, David, I have acted like a fool. I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. And this is true, but it's surprising to hear Saul say it so clearly and then once again he urges David to come back with him but again David knew by this time that Saul's words cannot be trusted as one person put it Saul admitted that he was playing the fool but there was no reason that David should play the fool also and so he doesn't he won't go back with Saul he tells Saul send somebody over here to get your stuff for you And then in verses 23 and 24, David makes it clear that he isn't trusting in Saul at all. He's trusting in the Lord. He's trusting in the fact that because he had valued Saul's life, that God would value his life. And that God would protect him and that God would deliver him out of all of his troubles. And then in verse 25, in a rare moment of clarity, even Saul acknowledges the truth that God will do just that for David. Look at verse 25. Saul said to David, "May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and still prevail." If this was the only verse we had about Saul's life, we would think that he was a godly and righteous man. But what he says here is right and good. He speaks a word of blessing over David, who he knows deep down is going to take his place. And then the last line of the chapter tells us that David and Saul go their separate ways after this encounter. It says David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. the truth of the matter is these two men would never see each other again. Saul goes his way, inching closer and closer to his death at the end of this book. And David goes his way, and the Lord goes with him and takes him closer and closer to the throne. And we said earlier that while this story is very similar to the story in chapter 24, that one of the things that is different is David himself. That David has grown in his faith by this point. And and of course, the Lord wants us to grow in our faith as well. And so uh, let's take a minute. Let's look at some of the lessons in this story about growing in our faith. And the first lesson is that growing in our faith means that we know, we understand That we will be tempted at times to get even with people who have hurt us. Certainly, David was dealing with somebody in King Saul who wasn't just trying to hurt him. It was somebody who was trying to kill him. Saul was eaten up with jealousy. He was progressively losing grip on reality. He was doing things that made no sense. He was chasing David all over the place, even though David had done him no harm at all. And I'm assuming that nobody in this room has quite the same adversary that uh, David had with Saul. I'm assuming that nobody in this room has somebody who is trying to kill you right now. But we have all had people in our life who have tried to hurt us or who have successfully hurt us. And that's true because you cannot go through life in this fallen world without somebody hurting you somehow. I don't know who that person is for you who has hurt you the most in your life. Maybe it is a parent. Maybe it was your mom or your dad. Maybe it's one of your children who has hurt you. Maybe it's your spouse or your ex-spouse. Maybe it's a friend maybe it's a coworker, a boss who has treated you unfairly i don't know who it is that has hurt you but i know at one point or another we have all been hurt we have all been wronged and because of that we have all faced the temptation that david faces in this story that night as he was standing over saul's sleeping body and the temptation is to listen to the abishai's in our life who tell us This is the time to get even. And the temptation is to symbolically pick up the spear and do whatever damage we can do to that person who has hurt us so that we can get even with that person who has wronged us. And there is something inside of us that makes us feel like that needs to happen. This wrong needs to be set right. This needs to be fair. This needs to be just. And the thing that would be the most just is if I was the one who was able to get this vengeance on this person who has hurt me. And we're really that way even from the time that we are kids. I know all of you with kids know this, but I think our kids have like like a pharaoh meter, right? I mean, they, they recognize right away when something isn't fair right? I mean, they will, they'll say stuff to me. My kids will say, you know, well, well, he had a soda. Don't I get a soda? Well, he had this ice cream. Don't I get that dessert as well? They'll say, well, he had 30 minutes playing on that uh, video game. I only had 25 minutes. This isn't fair, right? How many of y'all heard that this week? Parents, this isn't fair, right? There's a fair-o-meter that is inside of us from the time that we are born. But, but here is the reality. When it comes to our relationship with God, we are the ones who are in the wrong. We are the ones who have sinned against God, and the Bible says that the penalty of our sin is eternal death, and so what would be just What would be fair is if God sentenced us to the eternal death that we deserve. That would be just. That would be fair. But instead of giving us what is just and what is fair, God's own son went to the cross and suffered for my sin and for your sin. So instead of getting even with me, For the hurt and pain that I have caused him, what God did for me was he paid the price for my sins himself. And so instead of getting God's justice, I get God's grace instead. Here is the beautiful truth. God didn't get even with me. God gave eternal life to me. And if you know Jesus, he did the same for you. And so what kind of people should we be who have been treated with such grace by God? Should we be the kind of people who stand over the head of our sleeping enemy with a spear in our hands and say, I'm going to get back at him. I'm going to pin him to the ground and I won't have to strike him twice. Or should we be the kind of people who can show forgiveness and mercy when we have been wrong. Friend, what Saul are you standing over right now who has hurt you at some time in your life? Friend, if you pick up that spear, that is a road that has no end to it. And it will literally eat you up from the inside out. But if you, by God's grace, will put the spear down. If you will make that choice today, and it may be a choice that you have to make every day to show that person the same mercy that you have received from God, then God will set you free from the bitterness that has enslaved so many people in life. Here's a second lesson we need to learn about faith in this story. Growing in our faith means that we apply today the lessons that God taught us yesterday it means we apply today the lessons God taught us Yesterday, in in both 1 Samuel 24 and 26, David makes the same basic choice to not kill Saul when he had the choice. Both times, he says, it wouldn't be right for me to lay my hand on God's anointed. But in this story, he says something to Abishai that he did not say before. Look at verse 10. David said this to Abishai, standing over the body of King Saul, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. What is David saying? He's saying, I don't know how it's going to happen, but one way or another, God is going to take care of this situation, and I don't have to. Now, where did David learn that? Well, if you were here last week, you know where David learned that. He learned that when he was so upset with this rich guy named Nabal who wouldn't give him and his men any food that he saddled up his horses with 400 of his men and he rode off into battle because he wanted to kill Nabal that night and all the other men in his household except for a godly woman named Abigail who stopped him in his tracks and said, David, please don't do this. God will take care of Nabal for you. He's just a fool, and God can deal with him. You don't take his blood on your hands. And David thankfully listened to that and turned around and went back home. And God did take care of it. God struck Nabal down, and he died 10 days later. And that was a lesson that David did not forget. He learned that lesson in chapter 25 and he applied it to this situation with Saul that night in the camp. And that's how it should be with all of us as we grow in our faith. When God teaches us something, we should remember it and we should apply it. And so, friend, what are some of the lessons in your life that God has already taught you that have application to what you're going through in your life right now? What are some of the things he has shown you? Has he already taught you that he will always provide for you? Then why do you doubt his provision today? Has he already taught you that he loves you no matter what? Then why do you doubt that he loves you today? Has he already taught you that he is always there, that he is always present? Then why do you think that he has abandoned you today? Has he already taught you that his word is true, that his way is best? Then why do you think that his way is not best right now? Has he already taught you that he is always at work in your life, even when you don't understand his plan? Then why do you think he doesn't have a plan right now? for what you're going through in your life. Church, let's not forget the lessons that God has already taught us. Let's be like David. Let's apply them today in this situation that we find ourselves in. Let's, Let's apply right now the lessons that God taught us yesterday. Here's another thing that growing in our faith means. It means we don't try to dictate to God how he accomplishes his purposes. David is careful not to do that. Look again at verse 10. I think this is the key verse in this chapter. And Notice the way David speaks. David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. Again, he's making the case to Abishai, who wants to kill him right then and there, that we shouldn't do that, that they don't have to do that, because God is fully capable of handling that situation. And, and, And David realized a couple of things, I think. He realized, God has already promised me that I'm going to be king. The way Saul is behaving is ungodly, it is unrighteous, and God sees that, and God will make a way in his timing and in his way for me to become king, so I do not have to deal with this situation, and then David lets his sanctified imagination run a little bit, imagining the different ways that God could possibly take care of the problem with Saul. He says, Abishai, you never know. God might just strike him down one day, just like he did with Nabal. Or or maybe God won't do it that way this time. Maybe God will do it a different way this time. Maybe he'll just die. Or maybe he'll go out on the battlefield one day, and he's going to die in the battle. And, of course, that is, in fact, how Saul ends up dying, is on the battlefield. But notice what David doesn't do. David doesn't say, God, you have to do it this way. And God, you need to do it now. You need to do it in my timing. You need to do it the way I want. You need to do it when I want. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't give in to getting even because he trusts in God's perfect plan to do things, his way to do things. In his timing, he does not dictate to God how to handle the situation. He rests in the Lord's good, providential plan for his life, but sometimes we have a hard time with that, don't we? Sometimes we feel like God just isn't doing things the right way, and he just needs a little bit of help. Maybe he needs a few suggestions from us for how he could do things, or sometimes we're frustrated because God just isn't doing things fast enough, and we want to help God along. Have you ever been guilty of that? I know I have been. I remember when I was in my early uh, 20s and I was in seminary, there were two things that I uh, was praying for more than anything else. I was praying for a godly wife, and I was praying for a a ministry position where I could serve the Lord in the church. And and in my plan, those things were going to happen like right out of college. I was going to meet this woman of my dreams my senior year of college. I was going to be married at 23. I had written that down. That's when it was going to happen. Uh, the world was going to open up a, a ministry opportunity for me. First year at seminary, there was just going to be this golden opportunity right there. And, and yet year after year after year went by, and none of those things were happening. When I got up to seminary, I ended up getting a job at a fabric store. I wish I could say it was a more manly occupation, but something like working at a rock climbing gym or something like that. But actually, my future wife was working at the rock climbing gym. I was working at the fabric store at the time. And during those first few years at seminary, I met with a few different pastors about some opportunities to go on staff at different churches. As I prayed about them, I didn't feel like any of them was from the Lord. And so after three years of seminary, I came to the end of that first seminary degree, and I was frustrated. I had no ministry position. I had no wife. It didn't seem like the Lord was doing anything the way I wanted. He wasn't doing anything when I wanted it. Of course, the Lord has a plan all along, and it was far better in my plan because i didn't have a ministry position when i came to the end of that first seminary degree there was really no reason for me to stay up in north carolina for the seven months until i would start the doctorate program so i moved back home and god opened up an opportunity for me to serve here at my home church and of course the lord knew that in his plan he would call us back we would spend the last 10 years here but also during that seven months another thing happened i met megan i'd already met her we began to date and we got engaged and in fact uh, two days ago this friday marked the 14th anniversary of when i asked megan to marry me and i asked her right here on this spot where in god's grace i get to preach his word every sunday friend i don't know what it is that you're asking god to do in your life maybe you're single right now and You're asking for the same thing that I was. You're asking for a godly mate. Maybe you're asking for a ministry opportunity or for a job or or something else. And, And friend, go on asking. The Lord says to knock and to knock persistently, to take your request to him, to do so with faith. But don't fall into the trap of trying to dictate to the Lord when or how he will accomplish his will in your life. Do what David did. Say, well, maybe maybe it'll be this way. Maybe it'll be that way. Maybe it'll be some other way that I haven't even thought about. But I can rest in the fact that I have a good and gracious God who will work out his perfect plan in my life to make me just like Jesus. And I can be at peace right there. We've looked at some of the lessons about growing in faith that we can learn from this story with a couple minutes we have left, I just want us to see a couple ways this story points us to Jesus, our Savior. Every story in the Bible shouts his name because it is only at the name of Jesus that we can be saved. And so, very quickly, notice with me two gospel threads in this story. First off, we have an anointed king who was tested three times in the wilderness and passed. Tim Chester points out in his commentary on this story that David was in the wilderness in this time of his life. And this chapter, chapter 26, is the third chapter in a row when David was tested. In chapter 24, again, he was tested in the cave, whether or not he would kill Saul. In chapter 25, he was tested with Nabal, whether he would take revenge on him. Here in chapter 26, he's tested again with regard to Saul, and whether he would take matters in his own hands. And three times in a row, three tests in the wilderness, and David passed each one. Now, he barely passed the test with Nabal, to be fair. But he listened to Abigail's counsel, and he turned around and went home. He passed all three tests in the wilderness. Now, who does that Remind us of, in Matthew 4, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, was out in the wilderness. For 40 days he fasted and he prayed and he was tempted by Satan. And if you recall, Satan tempted Jesus three different times in three different ways. But at the heart of that temptation that Satan put in front of Jesus was basically the same thing that was in front of David here. It was to take the easy way out. The temptation for David was to kill Saul right then and there, to end his suffering in the desert. To skip over the suffering part and to move straight to the throne and straight to the crown. Isn't that essentially what Satan tempted Jesus to do? He said, Jesus, if you will just bow down to me right now, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. You don't have to do this, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. But thankfully, Jesus did not skip over the cross to go straight to the crown. Because it is only at the cross, it's only because he went to the cross, that you and I can be forgiven. Because it was there that our sin was paid for through the suffering of our anointed king. It's one of the gospel threads I see in this story that points to Jesus. Here's the second and final one that I want to point out. It's true what David said to Saul in verse 23. The Lord will repay everyone according to their righteousness. Now, when David says that to Saul, what he means is, Saul, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to get what is coming to you. The Lord repays everyone according to their righteousness. He's going to repay you for your unrighteousness. And he's going to repay me for my righteousness because the Lord is just. But the words that David uses there are true all the time for how our just God works. Because God is just, at the judgment day, he will repay everyone according to their righteousness. But you know what the problem is with that? Here's the problem. We we don't have any. He's going to pay everyone back on judgment day for their righteousness, but we don't have any righteousness. In fact, in Isaiah 64, it says this. It says that we are all like an unclean thing, that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. In other words, the very best things that we do are filthiness before God. That because we are sinners, even the best things that we do are stained with sin. In other words, we don't have any righteousness at all to bring to the table, and that is a problem. Because if God is going to judge us all according to our righteousness, and we don't have any righteousness, then God is going to give us what we deserve on that day, and what we deserve is his judgment. What we deserve is to be separated from him forever and ever. But by his grace and by his mercy, God has given a solution to our greatest problem in life. Yes, we don't have any righteousness, but here is the solution. Jesus is our righteousness. In 1 Corinthians 1, we read that, But of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. And listen, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. So how can we, who are sinful people, stand before God on that day of judgment and receive anything other than condemnation from the Lord? How can we do that? We can only do that because of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness, who lived a right perfect life that you and I have not been able to live. And then he went to the cross and he died for all of our unrighteousness. And the Bible says that when we trust in Jesus, that we are covered in his righteousness like a white garment, like a white coat that covers over all of our sin. And that is why I know that when I die, I will be with the Lord forever. It has nothing to do with me being good enough, because I am not good enough, not even close. But Jesus Christ is good enough. And through faith in him, through faith in the righteous one, I am covered in the righteousness of Christ. And here's the even more amazing part. God will repay me according to Christ's righteousness. Isn't that amazing? The good news is, I don't get what I deserve, I get what he deserves. That I get repaid for how righteous my Christ has been and because he lives inside of me. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Friend, does Jesus Christ live in you? Have you ever been covered with his righteousness like a garment because you have taken your life and you have entrusted it entirely to Jesus? If that hasn't happened in your life, then you are not ready right now to be repaid by God because the repayment that you would get right now is not a repayment that you would want. But today Jesus invites all of us to come and to trust in him, to receive his righteousness, his forgiveness into our life. I want to ask you to stand right now and If that's you, if you're hearing those words and you're saying, I need to make that step, I know that I'm a sinner, I know that I need a Savior, I know that I need to be covered in that righteousness, I want to invite you right now to leave your seat. As soon as we begin singing, just come speak with me or one of the other pastors who is here. Maybe you just need to come and kneel at this altar and and leave a, a hurt that has happened to you in your life, and you need to leave it here at the altar today and be able to move on without bitterness in your heart, but with forgiveness and mercy reigning inside of you, you can come and do that. You respond to the Lord as he speaks to you right now.